This week, we're going over Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, this is, um, this is one of those chapters in Daniel that I'm, I feel like you know, we rarely ever go through. And uh, at least I know for myself that this is perhaps the chapter that I read the least, at least within the first six chapters. Um, so I, I think um, it would be best if we could take the time now to read the entire chapter straight through. And it's pretty, sa- it's pretty self-explanatory. Once we go through it, you'll, you'll get, catch the drift really quick. And that'll really expedite the actual study. Instead of having to explain everything, you can figure it out as we, as we read. So why don't we go, starting with Norman, and we'll work our way around. Each person can take one verse until we come to the end of the chapter. All right, go ahead, Norman. All right, so we see here uh, the story of Daniel chapter 4. Basically, it's judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar. And we see a conversion at the end. Or actually, the whole story is like his conversion experience. Now, when we look at the book of Daniel, we don't want to just look at them, the chapters as independent of each other. We want to see the whole book as one book. That's why... The Bible placed them in one book. So we need to think now. Perhaps you can call this an outline. An outline of the first four chapters of the book of Daniel based upon the life of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, We'll do that again in chapter 5, but based upon the wise men of Babylon. You see, in the whole book of Daniel, there's 12 chapters, but Nebuchadnezzar appears only in the first four chapters. So, within the first four chapters, what can we learn about Nebuchadnezzar? Step by step, these chapters are written chronologically. They come after one another. So, we can just go in order. So, first, somebody can just tell me, there's no right or wrong answer. In chapter 1, what do we learn about Nebuchadnezzar? What did he do? How was his um, relationship with God and his people? In chapter 1. Okay, what did he do? Took over Jerusalem. So, first of all, he was antagonistic against God. He was a pagan king out to destroy this Jewish nation. So, he was totally against God, enemy of God. But then at the end of the chapter, what happened? You remember, he had an interview with the four Hebrew boys, and what was the result? Ten times smarter. They were ten times better than the other wise men, all the wise men of his kingdom. And he knew that there was none like these three men. And they went through the testing um, of the diet. So King Nebuchadnezzar had the first impression of God's people. Can we say that? So chapter 1, he was, you know, uh, enemy of God. Two, receiving a first impression of God's people. Okay? Now chapter 2. What was Nebuchadnezzar's relationship with God's people then? What experience did he go through with, in this case, Daniel? He had a dream. And, okay, this is going to be a little quiz, I guess. What was the main point of the whole experience of chapter 2, at least based on my personal studies? 
as I shared with you. Very, very close, very close. It's definitely related, but I guess it's been, it's been a while. But in chapter 2, God took away the dream, and he made sure that the wise men could not interpret the dream, because he couldn't remember it. For the intention that Daniel could reveal to the king, God himself. You remember, you remember the king was, you know, Daniel not only told him what the dream was and what the dream meant, but Daniel said, why, why don't we look there, Daniel chapter 2. In um, verse 29. I'll just read it real quick. As for thee, O king, chapter 2, verse 29, as for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. What should come to pass hereafter? And he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. So Daniel, in the presentation of what the king wanted, he not only said, well, this is, what, this is what it means. This is what you saw, the head of gold, da-da-da-da-da. This is what it means, da-da-da-da-da. All right, you know, go back to sleep. No, the king, or Daniel, he told the king his very desires, the very prayer, so to say, that he never prayed, or the prayer that he had in his heart that God answered even though he never prayed. So the whole point of chapter 2 was God revealing himself to King Nebuchadnezzar as a personal God, I'm not a God that's like all the other rest that whose dwelling is not with flesh. I don't care about you. No, it's not like that. No, Nebuchadnezzar had a first-hand experience with God through his people, namely Daniel. So first chapter, second chapter, third chapter, what happened? Set up the image. And what about his relationship? What happened between him and God's people? forgot about God okay now at the end of the chapter confrontation and um, let me put it this way more specifically he saw the testimony of the people of God he saw the actual um, he saw the actual journey or the experience that the people of God went through and he saw firsthand the power of God in delivering his people and uh, that is actually, in my opinion, perhaps one of the greatest, because it was a miracle. It was a sign, signs and wonders. And we're going to discuss about signs and wonders in just a second. But um, in chapter 4, what is experience that Nebuchadnezzar has in chapter 4 with God? Personally. In what way Personally. Making him a beast. Or can we say it was a judgment? God actually passed judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar for the purpose of converting his heart. So we see here a progression, right? Nebuchadnezzar starts out to- terribly against God. He gets a first impression. Oh, wow. These people are pretty incredible. And then Daniel comes and proves that first impression that he has. Wow, these guys really are. This God really is amazing. But then he turned away from that. And he said, but I will not surrender. And then he created that image. And then finally, he saw in the lives of God's people, wait a second, this God is more powerful than my gods. 
And this God really is more than all of my gods combined. And then in chapter 4, finally, he comes to face to face. Because all throughout, God is pressing him, make the decision, make, make the decision. Unspoken. I mean, chapter 2, we see it more clearly. But all throughout, it is unspoken. But we see Nebuchadnezzar is faced with a decision. He has a choice that he has to make. And in chapter 4 is when the tipping point comes. Is he going to make the choice for God or against God? And in the end, he makes a choice for God. So my friends, based on Daniel chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. And in fact, if you read the Spirit of Prophecy, that's exactly what she says. Nebuchadnezzar will be saved because he committed himself and he surrendered himself. And in chapter 4, we actually see the actual conversion experience, the, the, the personal uh, contact that God had with him that led him to make that decision to surrender completely. And so this is, this is a key, okay? Already we can see an immediate application. Who was Nebuchadnezzar again? What was his position, his office? He was the king of what nation? The king of Babylon. And the king of Babylon was saved. So what does that say about the rest of us? If God can save the king of Babylon, there's no excuse for the rest of us. And we can, we can say that about ourselves, but most of the time, you know, we, we, we want to be saved anyway. You know, that's not an issue for us. I mean, although there are some small group of people who literally think they're too bad for God to accept, but I don't think I'm talking to that audience here. But our problem is struggling with what we see in other people. Sometimes we think that person is too far gone. I shouldn't waste my time. You know, we think that these people, they're just so worldly, so sinful, that there's just no way. They've already made up their mind. But is that really true? Nebuchadnezzar seemed to have made up his mind in chapter 1. I mean, he destroyed the temple of God. And I think that um, he was pretty far down that path. Now, people would probably say he's gone too far, past the point of no return. But nonetheless, God saved him. And through his choice, he will be in heaven. So the king of Babylon was saved. What does that say about the rest of us and the people that God placed in our path that we run into? You know, they're not too far to be saved because they're not the king of Babylon. But anyway, taking a step further now into the story, I'm not going to read it verse by verse like we've been doing. We just read the whole chapter, so I'm just going to touch on some points. Now, the king, he had a dream. Now, that sounds awfully familiar, right? Chapter 4, it actually adds a word when he has a dream. In verse 5, it says, I saw a dream which made me afraid. In chapter 2, it simply says, it troubled me. But it says, it made him afraid, and the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. So he was actually scared this time. I mean, the last time he was just sort of worried, it seemed. But he was afraid now. And he called the wise men. He called all the wise men in. And um, whoever read it, I don't remember who, but the version that they, they had, I liked how they translated it. Um, it said they will not, the wise men will not make it an interpretation thereof. They will not give the interpretation. And my Bible says, And I told the dream before them, but they did not make known unto me the interpretation thereof. Uh, both of them give the same idea. The idea was not that they said we could not. The wise men, they didn't say, Well, we can't tell you the dream or the interpretation. They just didn't. 
or they wouldn't. You remember in chapter 2, I like drawing these connections. It's real simple. But um, in chapter 2, you remember the king forgot the dream completely. He forgot it. And he said, tell me the dream and the interpretation or else you know, I'll chop you to bits. But in chapter 4, the king actually tells him the dream. Why? How come the wise men didn't tell him the dream or tell him the interpretation? Now, we're going to touch on this a little bit more next week in chapter 5. But just within chapter 4, based upon the, the dream that we already read, just a, just a story, you see a tree in the middle of the, of the earth, and it's huge, yes, leaves and fruits, all the animals gather under it, the birds made nests in its trees, the fruit thereof was plentiful, and it was, you know, this magnificent tree. And then there was, you know, a watcher and a holy one come down from heaven and say, cut it down. And then leave the stump in the earth and you know, all the rest. You know, his heart shall be taken out of him, the heart of a beast shall be given unto him for seven times. Da, 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 da. On it goes. Now, based on your reading of this dream, could you come up with a pretty close interpretation of what it would mean? I mean, you remember, Nebuchadnezzar is not a, he's not a dummy. He actually is perhaps the wisest of all the wise men. So I would imagine, this is what I'm thinking, these wise men, they're not half-baked either. Well, I guess they are half-baked, but they're not totally stupid. They could tell. They heard the dream, and in their mind, they, th they would think, this dream the interpretation is obvious. You know what I'm saying? So the wise men, they're coming to the king, and the king tells them this dream. Basically, the answer is almost already there. It's just written all over it. And they knew that it was something bad. So again, in their mind, this is the wise men. This is what they're thinking. Well, if we give the king what is probably a pretty good interpretation in terms of faithfulness to the dream, then it will be something bad for the king. And can you imagine telling the king, giving the king a bad interpretation of the dream? Well, they're putting their lives at risk. But at the same time, if they give a soft, fluffy, sugar-coated, nice interpretation, then the king can say, well, come on, guys, stop pulling my leg. That's not right. So you see the dilemma that these wise men caught, were caught in. And um, it's, it's, it's sort of interesting that um, the wise men actually got themselves into this pickle because uh, in the next chapter we see the culmination of all of their incapabilities. But, um, but in chapter 4, this is, this, is what, this is what I want to bring out. And that is that God did not allow the wise men to give the interpretation for a very, very important reason. Already the king knows that Daniel is a true prophet. He already, know, he already knows. He says it, I think, two or three times. You know, I know the spirit of the holy gods are, is within thee. He knows that Daniel is the real thing. But God wanted to give the condition by which this prophecy will fulfill. Because if the wise men just simply gave an interpretation, they have no way of knowing that this was a conditional prophecy. Daniel tells the king, you know, if thou... Let's, let's read it. Verse 27. Daniel 4, verse 27. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be accepted, acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by iniquity... I'll break off thy sins, excuse me, by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. So Daniel's main... The main purpose that God wanted to, you know, 
the main reason why God withheld the interpretation from the wise men, but gave it through Daniel, was that Daniel could give, sort of, so to say, the condition or the ultimatum by which this prophecy would fulfill. And this is key, because this is the final straw. This is the last chance for Nebuchadnezzar. So God wanted to give him every opportunity that he could. He wanted to give him the option, the chance. And the, ap- the obvious application, I, I believe, is that for all of us, God does not give us the last chance without a condition. God does not just put the test to us without giving us forewarn- before forewarning us. And in the last days, the world, in the same way, has this forewarning. In Revelation 14, it's called the three angels' messages. Immediately afterwards, we see the second coming of Jesus. And after that, we see the seven last plagues and all of that. So this, the, the final message, the final judgment message, so to say, is vitally important because it marks the last chance, the last opportunity by which the world or individuals even have a chance to accept God. Now this is really going to be the main point of the rest of this chapter, this idea of the last chance, the, the, the judgment, the final, the final um, decision that has to be made. And just taking a sidestep from that, but also still on the same topic, is on this idea of signs and wonders. Daniel told the king, in pretty much, he told the king, you know, you have to break off thy sins by righteousness if this is not to come upon you. But yet, if you read in Daniel chapter 4, beginning, let's go to verse 2. What is this whole chapter about? What's the main point of this chapter, so to say, based on, based on Nebuchadnezzar? What is the theme that Nebuchadnezzar is trying to bring out in this chapter, uh, in verse 2? Can someone read that one for us? I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. So right in the beginning of this letter, or whatever is Nebuchadnezzar is writing, his whole purpose, his whole motive, his, his, his topic sentence, so to say, of this whole paper is to show the signs and wonders of God. We see that, right? The signs and wonders of God. And the signs and wonders, obviously, is his seven years being turned into a beast. That's the sign and that's the wonder. And we're going to come back to that in actually the next, the next chapter also. So don't forget this chapter too quickly. But Daniel chapter 4 is specifically, we can call it, the chapter of signs and wonders. And now what's so significant about signs and wonders? Now let's pause a moment and let's think back. What is the first time that you remember signs and wonders given and then judgment? No, the whole Bible. The flood. Yes, the flood. I didn't I forgot about that, but yes, that's exactly right. That's the first one. And then what others? After the flood. Signs and wonders. And then afterwards? Judgment. No, no. Egypt is what I'm thinking about. Ten plagues, right? Signs and wonders. And then we can go down through history. 
um, Mount Carmel, sign and wonder, fire came down from heaven. That was it. Judgment has come. That was the final decision. And also Jesus. Jesus did signs and wonders, working miracles and signs among the people before his crucifixion. And all of those signs and wonders that he did was to prove one thing, that he was truly who he said he was, the Son of God. And in, um, in uh, well, in Matthew 24, it says, the, sign shall be, the sun shall be darkened, moon turned to blood, stars shall fall, signs and wonders in the heavens. And immediately after that, it talks about the second coming of Jesus. Now, what's so significant about signs and wonders? This is, the, this is a key, key, key point that you guys cannot forget. That is that signs and wonders are given as a last resort. Noah preached for 120 years. And then at the very end, did God do the signs and the wonder of all the animals marching two by two or, or sevens into the ark? After that, after the people saw that miracle, there was no more that God could do. That was it. That was the last... That, I mean, God could not have revealed Himself anymore except coming in person. And that would have killed everyone. And all throughout history, Exodus, that's a per- prime example Pharaoh said, who is this God that I should let his people go? God said, okay, I'll reveal who I am to you. Plague number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten plagues. And even still, did Pharaoh, did his heart get softened? No, it, he hardened his heart. It, that hardened his heart doesn't mean God forced him to be hardened. But it was because God showed him so much that there's really nothing more that God could do. His heart was hardened to the point where he has seen everything and he has not made the right decision. And then down, Mount Carmel, Jezebel, she would not, she would not concede to God. Ahab, he would not turn back to God, although he was afraid of God. But he did not turn back to God, even after that showdown on Mount Carmel. So that was it. God said, sorry, you know, the line of Ahab has to end here. And he had, I believe, Jehu was his name, come and destroy them all. And then Jesus himself came. The Son of God himself came. And they still rejected him. The priests and the Pharisees, they said, you know, if you be the Son of God, you know, come down from the cross. We're, we're go- just a few days before, a few weeks before, Jesus raised the dead. I mean, people were there. So this is, the, this is an important point that we cannot forget. That is that signs and wonders is given as a last resort. But we have this good example here in Daniel chapter 4 where a sign and wonder did its work. Someone, that person did turn away from his iniquity and turn back to God. Don't mind them. Now this is, a, th- now this is very important for us personally. A lot of times I know I've gone through this. I know I've said this myself. That is that, why can't God just show me a sign? Why can't God just work a miracle and tell me where I should go, what I should do? We have to be careful when we ask that. Because when God reveals a miracle to us, that's perhaps our last chance. That's perhaps final. You know, this is it. God has already revealed Himself in so many ways that this is His last resort. And if you don't turn around and, and really obey Him now, then there's no more He can do. We have to be careful when we ask for signs and wonders. And this is, a, this is very deceiving now. Because there are a lot of other churches now, Pentecostals, whatever, they have signs and wonders. 
They have these miracles and all of this sort of stuff. But yet, it's coming from the wrong source. And even though it's coming from the wrong source, their hearts have been hardened. Even though they have, you know, it's not from God, but just the fact that they have seen all of these amazing things happen, ah, they have already hardened their heart to the simple reading and preaching and understanding of God's Word. And the book of Revelation chapter 13, it says that the second beast coming out of the earth, it's actually the first beast that comes out of the earth, but the second beast in Revelation 13, with two horns like a lamb, he will call fire down from heaven to deceive the men or the men or the people on the earth. So signs and wonders will take place. And when we see signs and wonders, we need to be careful because we know that the end is coming. It is a final chance, so to say, for the people of God especially. And so we need to be careful when we ask for signs and wonders. Now, with that, we can establish based on that then, this is Nebuchadnezzar's final chance. The final, last decision that he has to make. But now, what is that choice? What is it that God specifically wants him to make a decision for or to recognize? In chapter 4, I don't know if you caught it, but it is mentioned three separate times. Three times. The purpose, the purpose. You're saying? Sorry, can you say that one more time? That's right. That's right. Okay, let's, let's read it. She hit the nail on the head. Let's look in verse 17. First of all, someone please read that for us. It's measured by decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the Holy One to be intent that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whoever he wants and sets over it the basest of men. Okay, that's the first one. Let's look in verse 20. 25. That they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whosoever he will. Okay, and then verse 32. The whole point or the lesson that God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to learn through this judgment was that, look, Nebuchadnezzar, I am the one. I am the, I am the one that rules over the kings of the earth. I am the one that sets them up, takes them down, and gives a kingdom to whomsoever I will. But has God tried to teach that lesson to Nebuchadnezzar before? When? In chapter 2. That is exactly right. In chapter 2, God through the revelation of this whole image, was trying to get this point through to Nebuchadnezzar. Look, I am the one that takes up kingdoms and sets up kingdoms and takes them down. But Nebuchadnezzar turned away from that, you see. And he said, no, now I'm going to make an image all of gold to defy this concept that God is the one that rules over all. So God just took him in a big circle. Back to point A. God said, you need to come to the, you need to come to terms with me on this point. You need to overcome this area. 
you have fallen once, but I'm giving you a second chance. You can get up and try it again. Isn't that the same way with us? We go through life and we fall. But then somehow, amazingly, we are brought back to the exact same test. Maybe, I mean, I shouldn't say exact same test, but the same type, or the same, um, same type, I guess, is the best way of putting it. You know, God brings us back to the same point where we have fallen before, gives us another chance, another chance. Sometimes He gives us so many chances that we feel like, you know, why, why do you bother? But the fact is that God will bring you back to the point where you are weakest until you overcome or until you choose not to overcome, one or the other. So we have, we have decisions to make every day in our lives. If we make the wrong one, well, we're going to get the chance to make up for that, perhaps, sometime in the future. Unless it's one of those experiences. I mean, I can't say for every decision, obviously. I can't say that every decision that we make, every obstacle we face will come again. I'm not saying that. But in general, where we have fallen, where we are the weakest, God will bring us back to it. So just because we think that we've snuck away or we, we got past it this time that you know, we don't have to worry about it, uh-uh. I've experienced it one, you know, too many times to know that it's true. God gives us enough chances to know that you know, this is the right way. He gives us those chances. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar, praise the Lord, he made the right decision this last time. Now, let's, let's discuss just a brief moment now on the actual transformation of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I don't want to explain too much of it because this chapter basically tells you everything there is to know. I mean, he, he, I mean Daniel pretty much explains that. You're going to be like the beast of the field. You're going to have, you know, you know the, you're going to eat grass and your kingdom shall be saved, all this sort of stuff. So I'm not going to touch on all of that. You can, you can read it and figure it out on your own. Sure. Sure, per, I don't know his emotions, but all I know is this. Look at verse 36 and 37. At the same time, my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me. And I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. So it was after his conversion experience that he actually received more blessing, and he received more glory. Now verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth, and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is also able to abase. Now I, personally speaking, you know, I feel like, sure, there was an element of fear, but after a point, Nebuchadnezzar came around, and he actually praised and honored the Lord. And this is another key point. If you look at the experience in chapter 4, it's not a glorious experience. 
I mean, it's a terrible humiliation. And as a king of, hang on just a second, as a king of Babylon, to be willing to actually write this down and to send it to, it says here, all the earth, it shows me that it was a true conversion. It wasn't just out of fear. If it was just out of fear, he probably wouldn't have written this, this story. Right, sure. That's, that's a key point, too. I remember David Ashik, he mentioned it when he was here, that God loves us enough to make us quadriplegic if that means we're going to accept him. And um, I'm not saying because David Ashik said it's right, but just some of you who were there might have remembered. But it's true. I, you know, you've all heard stories. You know, I was you know, down this path, almost on the point of death. I was overdosed on drugs, laying, hallucinating, and then God spoke to me. I was hanging by a thread in the hospital my... You know, vital signs were just going, and that was when God spoke to me. You know, we have these stories. It's not because God forces it upon the person. It's because that's the only way, sometimes. That's the only way. Actually, in Amos 4, God gives an example of that. 
it says exactly the same thing, so we don't actually have to go to another human being. Mm. But then he was four, he says, look, I send you tribulations, you didn't turn to me. I send you pestilence, you didn't turn to me. I rained on some of you, you didn't turn to me. I did all those things, and I love you so much, why don't you turn to me? Mm. But you know, another thing too is uh, he does a lot of good things for us too. And um, That's right. whether he does good or bad, I think people, um, their, their decision to follow him or not isn't, isn't based on whether it's good or bad just because, like, um, well, I mean, he did so many signs for the uh, Israelites when they were getting out of Egypt. And a lot of times that, like, well, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, Mount Carmel where they make a golden calf. Well, actually, Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. And... Uh, you know they want a they want a God that they can see, even though it doesn't do anything for them. And uh, like even though he's already been able to feed, deliver them, um, drown the enemy, and they still don't. I mean, sure. Something that David Asher said, not saying that he's over right, but you know, at, at the restoration, he's like, there are some people that Jesus Christ Himself could come and preach the sermon, and they still would have believed. Mm-hmm. It's like they they've hardened their heart so much that God Himself could come speak and people would still not come you know would not come and after a while Jesus could be there you know everyone would be you know happy to see him for like a week oh yeah yeah and two weeks go through they would just go on to the line sure all right taking you just one step further on this almost the same topic but in the whole process of this conversion experience this judgment period seven years with Nebuchadnezzar you have to understand that this prophecy that Daniel spoke is not the first prophecy that Daniel had. In chapter 2, he had this prophecy. But in chapter uh, chapter 4, the people were probably thinking, well, Daniel, he's pretty got, he, he must have gotten something up his sleeves here. And for seven years, this is what happened, okay? Number one, Nebuchadnezzar became a beast and he lived on grass. Is it possible for any human being to, live on, to survive on grass? A human being cannot digest grass. Okay? And secondly, his kingdom was... Well, well. secondly, let's take a step back. Nebuchadnezzar never got... You know, he never died. For seven years. God could have said, for seven years you'll be as a beast, but I'm not guaranteeing your life. No, God said, seven years, and I will preserve your life. I mean, he was living on the fields with the oxen. I mean... He could have been killed by animals, if not, you know, other people that did not like Babylon. And that takes us directly to the next point. In the age, in that age, I mean, people were not ethical like we think they are. You know, they, we think of Alexander the Great. At his death, they murdered his wife, murdered his, his child, and divided the kingdom into four parts among the generals. But Babylon here, seven years... And the kingdom was never taken away from Nebuchadnezzar. The kingdom never fell. Nobody ever overtook Babylon. Within or without, God preserved the kingdom just like he said. He said, leave the stump. You know, bind it with a uh, band of iron and brass. And if you look in Isaiah 45, verses 1 and 2, we won't look there. You can write it down if you have a piece of paper. It's talking about the bars of iron and brass of Babylon. The city will be protected for seven years. So can you imagine, for seven years, the people were waiting with anticipation. This is going just as expected. This is exactly what Daniel said. And somehow, God preserved 
preserve the kingdom of Babylon, preserve the life of Nebuchadnezzar, so that at the end of seven years, at the end of the chapter, we already read it, it said that his counselors came to him for counsel. His wise men came to him for counsel. Can you imagine going to this beast in the field after seven years? You know, his shaggy, he has, you know, long nails, dirty. Like, oh, king, we have this problem with, you know, the stock market. What should we do? You know, it's, it's not likely that that's what people naturally would do. So nonetheless, although there is perhaps an element of fear, nonetheless, we see all over the mercy of God and the goodness of God. The whole point of this, or the, the main purpose, or the main thing that God wanted to change in Nebuchadnezzar was his pride. He preserved him, his life. He gave him sustenance. He gave, you know, protected his kingdom for him. All for the one purpose that he would come to himself so to say, so that he can regain his mind. Okay, now, in conclusion, we need, to, we need to wrap things up here. But it's very interesting why the prophecy or the dream started out with a tree. You remember that? It was a tree, but then partway through the prophecy, it said, and he, uh, uh, his heart, man's heart shall be taken from him, and a beast's heart will be given unto him, and he shall be like the beast of the field. Now, why did it switch all, all, you know, all of a sudden in the middle from a tree to a beast? It was like a transition that's not very smooth. Well, first of all, that automatically tells us this is dealing with a person. It's not dealing with just a tree. But now, just somebody tell me real quick, for what reason were trees cut down based on the words of Jesus? Let's look it up. Is that what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7? Not bearing fruit. That's the fig tree, and it withered up. But is that what Jesus said about the tree? Matthew chapter 7 and verse 19 and 20. if it doesn't bring good fruit. Or if it, in verse 18 it says, A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not good fruit, so based on verse 18, it's talking about bringing forth evil fruit or corrupt fruit. That tree is hewn down and cast into the fire. So Nebuchadnezzar here, it, I mean, you can read it in chapter 4, he bears forth, he bears much fruit. But he was cut down. So what kind of fruit was he bearing? evidently not good fruit and the only other option is bad fruit or evil fruit so Nebuchadnezzar the re- one of the reasons why this tree was cut down and I want to look at this in a more of an application to our day this tree was cut down because it was bringing forth evil fruit evil fruit and let's look in real quick Philippians chapter 1 Let's read um, Ephesians, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Anyone? That you may be able to discern what is best, and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness 
that comes through Jesus Christ and the glory and praise of God. So the, let's put two and two together. Nebuchadnezzar's tree was cut down because it was not bearing good fruit, or can I say righteous fruit? So how can a person bear righteous fruit? Based on Philippians 1.11. By Jesus. Or through Jesus. Now let's go to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 verse 27. Can someone read that? Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. So, if I could have one most important verse in the whole chapter, it would be verse 27. Verse 27, I believe, is the key verse of this chapter because this is the hinge. This is the condition. O king, let my counsel be acceptable in thee. Break off thy sins by righteousness. And righteousness comes only through Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot, a whole lot more that we can say about this, um, but we need to close. And that is this. We have already you know, brought a lot of application in our lives today. But, let's put them all together. First, signs and wonders. When we see signs and wonders, we know that the final end is near. And just as a aside, the signs and wonders in the sun, moon, and stars has already taken place. The final judgment, the hour of his judgment is come. We are living in the hour of judgment. So we know that the close of probation, so to say, the end is near, is coming. And the only way by which we can pass through that judgment or to become... Um, I guess that's probably the best way to put it, is to pass the judgment as innocent. The only way is by bearing good fruit or fruits of righteousness or having, or having the righteousness which is by Jesus Christ. Or can I say, we must have righteousness by faith. That is the whole purpose, or I shouldn't say purpose, the whole um, method or it is the only thing that will prepare us to stand in the judgment hour. That's why the Bible says the everlasting gospel will be preaching to all the world. The everlasting gospel has, you know, is talking about having righteousness by faith in Jesus and righteousness by the faith of Jesus. And that's not the purpose of our study tonight, but perhaps we'll touch on it some more all throughout. But in chapter 4, what we can learn is that the way that we can come through the judgment and be able to stand in the hour is through having righteousness by faith. And Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't. And that's why he went through the judgment. But that was not the final judgment of the end of the world. But through the judgment of God, he turned around. But we see in the next chapter that the final close of probation does come. And it is directly related with chapter 4. But we'll have to pick it up next time. So with that, let us, why don't we kneel together as we pray.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the lesson in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. As we see this Babylonian king turn to you and become converted, Lord, we realize that you truly are an awesome God, almighty, all-powerful, and that you are strong to save, that you are looking for ways to even reach the worst of sinners. Lord, as we have gathered here tonight, we realize our inefficiencies, our failings, our shortcomings. And we ask that you help us to break off our sins by righteousness. And I pray that you will help us to show mercy to others as well. Give us the faith of Jesus as we learn to have righteousness by faith, that we will be able to stand in the hour of judgment. Lord, please be with us as we go our separate ways tonight until we meet again. Bless us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.